It's our great joy once again to open the Word of God together and study what God would have for us. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn in them to our study of Romans chapter 3. We are in Romans chapter 3 this morning. We are continuing our study of this great doctrine, as I said when I was reading through Galatians, the doctrine of justification. This is a difficult passage in one sense to teach, not because the the words here are difficult or that the structure is somewhat difficult and, and hard to understand, but because we know so much about it in reference to things written, other theologians, we are standing on the shoulders of, of men much more acute than I, much more learned than I in explaining these things. We're filled with so much information in our day and age that oftentimes when we look at these things, we go, yeah, 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 let's just move on. And I don't want us to do that because this is a crucial text for us in this study. This is the, the crucial turn, if you will, in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul uh, as he goes from the doctrine of condemnation to the doctrine of justification. As we learned really last Lord's Day, I told us this was the very hinge point of the gospel. If it ended at verse 20, we would be a people with no hope. It would be a people who who would sit here going, well, we are condemned before God and we have nothing we can do. And there is a true sense to that reality. There is nothing we can do. Thank goodness for the verses that follow. Verse 20. This is the very reason why the Apostle Paul is so adamant in proclaiming that he is, in verse chapter 1, not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because in the gospel, here is the reason why he's willing to proclaim the truth, even in the most difficult of situations. Why you and I should be willing, in the most heinous of situations, in the most challenging of moments, this is why we must be not ashamed of the gospel. Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is, in our study, the magnificent doctrine known to us as justification. Justification in its simplest of forms, in its simplest term, means simply this, to be free from blame or to be free from guilt. Well, that's a great reality if you understand the full weight and the full reality of what comes to us from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. If we understand the full weight of sitting before God in the courtroom of God and coming away from that reality with one and one thing only, you are condemned. If you understand that, then the idea of justification becomes a glorious and bright light upon the horizon to be free from condemnation. To be free before God and not be judged. What was in the previous verses, the universal conclusion, the pronouncement of condemnation upon all of mankind by the eternal and divine judge because there is universal unrighteousness. All of that can be washed away. So 
that we who are guilty before God can stand justified. There is a way to stand before God blameless. If that doesn't bring a smile to your face, then you are incredibly dead. That truth is the essence of the message of God's gospel. Unrighteous man has been provided a way to be righteous. What was once impossible has been made possible. What could not be accomplished by us on our own has been eternally accomplished by God Himself. All of these wonderful realities are unfolded for us from verse 21 of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5, verse 21. So this is the beginning of God's divine roadmap, if you will, for mankind. And we have been reminded of the reality of it, that it has nothing to do with our accomplishments at all. The divine road map to the kingdom of glory, the narrow road as Matthew states it, has nothing to do with you bringing any kind of baggage that will help you on the way. All it has to do with is God and what He has accomplished. And that is the place for all of us to begin. It is to put no trust in our own human efforts. Jesus puts it this way, all you who are weary and heavy laden, are you? You ever think of that? We read that verse, sometimes we go through it, we think about it, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. And we, we, we don't see ourselves in the first half of that verse oftentimes. But we should. Are you weary? Heavy laden? Trying to do it your own way? This is God's way. This is not man's way. In answer, as I I was saying last week, in answer to man's ultimate quest in life, this is the truth that all of our family, all of our friends, all of our co-workers, every person needs to know. It can be summed up with the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 and verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's what everyone needs to come to grips with. You cannot stand justified. You cannot stand in a place of being guiltless before God by your works. I don't know how else to say that. You cannot arrive innocent and acceptable before God on the day of judgment by following your own way. If you try to become righteous by some act of your own, it will only lead to the inevitable outcome of eternal condemnation before God. Why? Because there is nothing you can do. There is no human road map that you can follow 
There is no religious roadmap that you can follow. There is no way in which you can add to some kind of religious practice and add to Jesus something and add your life to to do some religious thing in hopes that you can become righteous. That will get you nowhere except declared full of blame before God. there has been graciously provided another way. And it begins with following God's roadmap. And Paul begins to share that with us starting in chapter 3, verse 21. And I want to begin this morning by focusing just on verses 21 to 26 as we once again begin to look at what I shared with you last time was, or at least the starting what I shared with you last time, seven truths concerning this now available righteousness. This is a righteousness that is now available to us. Let me read these verses for us. The Apostle Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law, And the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified then as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As I said, I believe Paul lays out for us seven truths concerning this new and acceptable righteousness that is crucial if we are to stand blameless before God. And it is not only crucial for us who are already believers in Jesus Christ, have genuine faith, are true Christians. This is, in fact, an anchor that that ought to rest deep within the recesses of our minds so that we can rest there and so that you can revel in the fact that justification has been accomplished for you. This is what you proclaim to others about Jesus Christ. But these truths are even more crucial to those who do not yet believe. Why? Because this is the only way for you to be made right with God. This is it. Don't try something else. Don't go after some other religion. Don't go after some other guru who tells you some other way. This is the only way. And so we began last week to discover these truths. We only covered the first two of them. What I want to do this morning is I want to list them all for you and then begin to go through each one. This is a righteousness that we all need. This is a righteousness that 
We must have if we are to stand acceptable to God. And Paul begins to explain this righteousness by way of these seven truths. Here they are, just for your own notes. Number one, the provision of the righteousness. We talked about that last time. Number two, the agent of this righteousness. Number three, the availability of this righteousness. Number four, the necessity of this righteousness. Number five, the consequence of this righteousness. Number six, the instrument of this righteousness. And then number seven, the reason. The reason for this righteousness. So you have provision, agent, availability, necessity, consequence, instrument, and reason. These are the seven truths that begin to unfold God's divine roadmap into His presence. So then this righteousness that we all need is, first of all, just by way of review, the provision of God. It is the provision of God. It is not provided by us. It is provided by God. Paul says, and we saw this last week, so this is just a reminder, verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It is something provided by God. It is a righteousness that can stand before God and not be condemned. That righteousness is now available to us and it has nothing to do with us by way of coming from us. It's utterly and completely separated from, apart from. That's what he's saying. It is apart from the law. The keeping and doing of religious activity or whatever kind of activity and morality you might want to think of that earns favor with God, it is apart from any of that. It has nothing to do with any of that. Any attempt by you to gain approval by your own merit, it is apart from that. You cannot bring it naturally. It must come from God. So God provides it. It was witnessed by the law. It was witnessed by the prophets in the Old Testament. It is all that the New Testament reveals to us. It is a provision of righteousness. It has been provided by God, and it must be apart from anything fallen humanity brings. You cannot bring your fallen human works on the narrow road to glory. It doesn't. There's no check baggage coming. The second truth that we were reminded of last week was this, that the agent of this righteousness is faith. Faith and faith alone. Notice we are reminded in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. Through faith. So in order for the divine transaction of God's revealed righteousness to be accredited to any of us, for that imputational process to happen, it must be appropriated through the agency of faith. The righteousness of God through faith. When my wife and I bought our home, we had a desire to own that home. Before we ever owned it, we looked at it, we 
checked out all the insides and outsides, and we wanted to own that home. And to, in order to accomplish that task, in order to receive that home to be ours, we went through an agent, someone who would facilitate that so that the home would be imputed to us. And the dollars of someone else would be imputed to them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to give that back. The agent facilitated the appropriation of our home for us. But the agent wasn't the house. They were just the facilitator of the house. So in a greater and infinitely more important way, faith is the agent through which the righteousness of God is gained by us. This is why this faith must be a gift. This is why Ephesians 2 says that faith is a gift from God. The faith that that is the agency through which the righteousness is gained by us is a gift. Not something conjured up in you. Oh, if I just have enough faith. No, it's a gift. So if righteousness by its simplest meaning is to be right or innocent, to be in right standing, then the right standing before God that we need is gained through faith. But faith in what? Notice it is gained through faith in God. You notice that? It's righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see the synonymic reality there? God is equated with Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's God in the flesh. That is the only righteousness that will be acceptable before God. God's righteousness is perfect. It's untainted. Unfallen. Unchanging. So Paul says we gain this righteousness of God through the agency of faith in the one who is the manifestation of that righteousness. Jesus Christ. So when verse 1 says that the righteousness of... Or when verse 21 says that so when the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's speaking about the revealing, the viewing of, the reality of Jesus Christ and His incarnation. Coming. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ not only claimed to be God in the flesh, but He proved it in word and deed, through and through. You can read it in the Gospels. We are studying it in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, John says, I put this here so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you would have life in His name. So when we exercise this gift of faith in Christ, it is actually faith in God. Notice that this righteousness is gained through faith for all those who believe or who are believing. Realize when we say, I believe Jesus Christ, I believe He satisfies the the, the full reality of what God requires of me when it comes to standing before Him in the right place. Jesus Christ is the one in whom God looks to. When we say we believe that, that, that is a, a, a reality of faith and yet the continuation of believing for all those who continually believe that. Listen, you can't just take an intellectual assent and say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and then never believe anymore. It's ongoing. It's continual. For all those who are believing, 
someone might be thinking, well, if it's faith in Jesus Christ, that is the object of the agency of that righteousness that we need that justifies, then what about the people of the Old Testament? What about those people? Was this principle of faith any different in the Old Testament? I mean, surely the manifestation was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Sure, it was spoken of back there in a kind of shrouded, kind of mystical way. But if faith is in Jesus, the object, faith in Jesus, then how did they get saved? Well, Paul's going to specifically deal with that in chapter 4 of Romans. But, but I want to touch on it for a moment because it could be confusing if we're not careful in our own thinking. Because the principle is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we gain the righteousness. And the word righteousness or, or righteous is used 600 plus times in the Bible. And of those times, the first place that we find it is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. So I want us to go back there for a moment. Genesis chapter 6. And if you've read through the Scriptures at all, which many of you have, you know what's happening in Genesis chapter 6. God is dealing with Noah. And there is a declaration made by God concerning Noah. And it says this in chapter 6 and verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time Noah walked with God. This is the first time we see the word righteous. Noah was a righteous man. In fact, in his generation, that verse says he was blameless. And the question is, how can that be? How can that be? He's human. Why would Noah be considered by God to be righteous and blameless? Was it because he's better than the rest? Was it that when you measured all of humanity, there's Noah, he's at the top of the heap, he's the best one of them all? Well, I don't think that's the case, because if you notice in verses 5 to 7, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, And he was grieved in his heart, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for all, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah's part of the verse 5 through 7. He's part of humanity. He's part of the thing that God looks at and every thought and intention of the heart is wicked all the time. So even Noah would have been considered in that group. And yet verse 8 says that he found favor with God. Favor is grace. 
because of that grace, verse 9 says he was blameless, a righteous man. Noah somehow was pleasing God, right? Somehow. How? How could God consider him righteous? Or how could God consider him pleasing to him if Noah was part of the group of chapter 5 through 7? He's part of the guilty group. How does God find him righteous? Well, we find out specifically when we turn in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great hall of faith. Here are those who walked and lived by faith. That that entrustment of God and what God says. And in chapter 11, verse 7, says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things yet not seen. Noah, the world is wicked. All of humanity is wicked. I'm going to destroy it all with a great flood. I know you've never seen rain before, Noah, but rain's coming. It's going to be a lot of rain. You need to do what I tell you to do. By faith, Noah. Being warned about the things not yet seen in reverence. You know what reverence is? Fear of God. Remember what, we, remember what Romans 3 said? There was no fear of God before their eyes. That's what it says in chapter 3 before we get to the section where it says, but now God has, God's righteousness has been manifested. No fear of God before man. Man doesn't care. Man wants to do his own thing. Man wants to try his own way. Man thinks he can do it on his own. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And yet when someone is honoring God, when someone desires to honor God, the fear of God is before their eyes continually, Psalm says. Noah was warned by God. God said, Noah, here's the deal. Noah believes God, even though he doesn't see the things. And in reverence, Noah does what God says. Prepares an ark for the salvation of his household, in which he condemned the world. And he became heir of the what? Righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah's righteousness before God was no different than the righteousness that you and I might have. The righteousness that is provided by God, yet it comes through Christ. It's gained the same way through the agency of faith. The Old Testament saints are saved the same way you and I are saved by faith. Because, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. 
So right before that verse, right before verse 7, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So don't equate what happened with Noah as something that Noah conjured up in himself and somehow became righteous before God by his works. It's not like that. It's impossible to please God that way. You have to have faith. You have to have faith. We will never be a pleasure to God without first believing in God. In order to have faith, you must first believe that God is, right? So an atheist is never going to come to faith in Christ until they first believe God is. Just because they don't believe God is doesn't doesn't mean that God isn't. God is, regardless of whether they believe it or not. The fact is they'll never believe in Christ until they first believe that God is. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because righteousness comes through faith. Believing in God means believing in Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And so the faith of both the Old and the New Testament is the same kind of faith. The agency of righteousness is the same, and the object of that righteousness is ultimately the same. It's Jesus Christ. Romans 3, you have the provision of that righteousness and the agent of that righteousness that we need so desperately. So now let's then see the third and the fourth truth concerning this righteousness because I think they piggyback on one another. The availability of this righteousness and the necessity of this righteousness. Notice the rest of verse 22 and verse 23. It's a faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this is a, the wonderful reality concerning God's righteousness, and, and the reality is that it has a universally availability to all who would truly believe. In other words, it's out there. The gospel is preached to all people. So where the works of man are dependent upon those who can do good works, right? if you want to try it that way, go ahead, but you better do it perfectly. You better do it all the time. You better never fail at any time. And since you've already failed, you might as well just stop trying. Even those who assume that they can, cannot do it. None are good enough. Yet the righteousness of God has been revealed and made available to all who would believe. See that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So on the one side of the coin, you have the salvation in the the provision of God's righteousness that's made available. And yet on the other side of the coin, there is an exclusivity of the righteousness of God being appropriated only by those who believe. You see, it's there. The righteousness of God is through faith, and yet you must believe. So there is a universality to it, and yet there is an exclusivity to it. Oh, 
be saved if God decided to save all because Christ is sufficient to save all. The righteousness of God is enough. There is no deficiency in that. There there is enough righteousness within God to save all that He has ever created. But the reality is that only those who would entrust themselves to Jesus Christ will receive the righteousness. That's the reality. Why? Because all men need that righteousness. Paul says there's no distinction. No distinction. He's already declared the utter impartiality of God when it comes to judgment. Yes, you might be morally better by way of your own life than some other person, and yet there is no impartiality with God. God will not judge you by way of that kind of standard. You must stand before Him. And so when it comes to condemnation, there is no distinction and all are guilty. Therefore, all need this righteousness of God. There is no distinction there. And this is the amazing phrase. And I believe that it is two-sided, really, this no distinction reality. Two sides, which I think we can gain perspective from. On one side is assurance for us who believe in God. There's an assurance there. There's no distinction. You believe God's righteousness is upon you. It cannot be removed from you. It is a declaration by the judge himself. You will, in fact, be saved. Why? Because that righteousness has enveloped you because it's the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. There is no distinction. In other words, someone will not have faith who will not not be saved. Genuine faith always saves. Anyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ will gain His righteousness. In the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, verse 37, The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That's the problem. of us are better or worse than the next. And just as there is no distinction before God among those whom He saves, we also must remember that it is because there is no distinction among humanity which is utterly lost. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the necessity of righteousness. Do you see? You have to have it. Why? Because we all fit in that group. We have all sinned. That's a a, a reality of something happened in the past with continuing ramifications. When did it happen in the past? In the Garden of Eden. We were all in Adam. Chapter 5 will clearly distinguish that for us. We were in Adam. Adam was our federal head. When Adam sinned, we all were there sinning with Adam. We have sinned, and because of that, we all fall short of the glory of God. That reality is a continuing reality. We are continually falling short of the glory of God with our lives. This is why your works will never never meet the standard. Your life, in and of itself, without Jesus Christ, only glorifies yourself. It doesn't bring an honor glory of God. It doesn't reflect the very character and nature and desire of God lived out in your life. 
reality of the sin factor in all humanity is clearly proven. In the Old Testament, Solomon said this, Ecclesiastes 7.20, quote, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. The Apostle John, 1 John 1.8, reminds us, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Huh. I like the way John says it. I would have said it totally different. I would have said, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. That's how John said it, really. He just said, the truth isn't in you. That's kind of a backhanded way of smacking you upside the head. The Apostle Paul reminds those in Galatia in chapter 3. I didn't read this this morning, but here it is. Chapter 3, verse 22. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So listen, while the gospel is available to everybody, it's preached to everybody, the reality of its availability lies in the reality of its necessity because every man continually comes up short when it comes to the divine standard of God's glory. And because of that, it is desperately needed by all of us. We need the glory of God. But when God grants faith and it is exercised and the righteousness of God is the in the gain column of your life, then the verdict of this righteousness before God is justified. Notice what he says. This is the fifth truth, the verdict of this righteousness. Verse 24 says, we've all, verse 23, we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God, being justified, notice, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. When there is faith in Christ, God's declaration concerning us is that we are justified before Him on the basis, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Not on the basis of anything you've done or anything you've brought with it. It's on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification is a word in the original language that comes from the same root word as righteousness or righteous. So that when we are justified, when we are declared right before God in His courtroom, we are then in a forensic fashion legally declared in eternity before the One who created it all. Because He's making the declaration. We are legally declared to have met the demands of His righteousness that He demands. His standard. We have been declared to have met it. Even though we have never met it. And the only way we've been declared to meet it is 
by His grace, same way as Noah, through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to say once again, like I did last time, we cannot confuse this with sanctification. Do not confuse your justification with the idea of how you live for Christ now. Sanctification, sanctified, holy, set apart. We cannot be like Christ now in some kind of way in order to be justified. Okay? Don't confuse sanctification with justification. Don't take sanctification and justification and flip them upside down and and try to say that because you're living rightly, because you're doing your devotions and and walking in righteousness and and singing all the right songs and living the right way, that somehow God's going to like you more or like you better today than He did yesterday. Don't, Don't get it like that. That's flipping justification and sanctification on its head. Justification is a declared reality that God does. You bring nothing to it. Sanctification is a process by which God has engaged us in. But it is a process that comes after being justified by which we are then being transformed into Christ-likeness in our actual practice. We are living to the glory of God when we submit ourselves to the Word of God by the power of His Spirit. So justification is a one-time declaration by God in which we are counted as righteous before Him. Whereby sanctification is the process by which God actually in time is making us practically like Christ. We are becoming more and more Righteous in practice, not in position. Maybe maybe I can say it this way. Justification is declared holiness. Sanctification is holiness in action. Justification is declared holiness. Sanctification is holiness in action. While those are two different realities for the Christian They cannot be separated. Why? Because those whom God justifies, He also sanctifies. He does not sanctify those who are not justified through Christ. So Paul says, all of this is done. Look at verse 24. All of this is done through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, being bought back. It's freely given to us. It's completely out of God's divine grace, His mercy, His His favor upon us simply because He's a a God who, who bestows grace. He hasn't overlooked your sin. He has taken all of your sin and given it to Christ's column and taken the righteousness of Christ and put it in your gain column. Christ has paid the price you could never pay. It's through His redemption through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It was Christ who bought us back from the slave market of sin. That's what redemption means, to buy back. 
So the sixth truth in the list that I gave you, we already know what it is. The instrument of this righteousness is Jesus Christ. Verse 24 and 25, right? It's redemption in Christ Jesus, the one whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of the righteousness of his righteousness at the present time. You see, God put his son on public display. God sent his son here to this earth, born of a baby in a lowly place in Bethlehem, or born of Mary. Lived, grew under the law, kept the law, did everything required by the law, perfect in every way, always doing the will of the Father. So that the world would see that when he was on public display, that God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of God the Son. Sometimes we like to say, Jesus died for me. And while there's truth there, the reality is Jesus died for God. Not to save God. Certainly God the Father needed no saving. Certainly Jesus Christ needed no saving. But we needed saving. And God needed to be just in punishing sin. And when Christ was punished for sin, God could be the justifier of those who believe in Christ. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of satisfaction, of appeasement, or really appeasing the wrath. Christ is the appeasement of the wrath of his Father. See, man has been trying to appease God's wrath his his entire humanity. Throughout all of history, he offers gifts and, and sacrifices and any other number of works and attempt to satisfy whatever deity he's serving. Man cannot do that, satisfy God. So what man could not do, God did. And the Father was satisfied with the Son. And he put him on public display. Demonstrating his righteousness. Demonstrating the righteousness of Christ and demonstrating the righteousness of the Father. Why? Because because all the Old Testament sins needed to be dealt with fully. Right? From Adam all the way to Christ. They in the forbearance of God he he passed over the sins previously committed. He didn't forget about them. They weren't going unpunished. All the sacrifices of the animals that could not do anything except cover it for a time, but all of it needed to be dealt with in reality. So all of that is heaped upon Christ. For all who would ever believe from the Old Testament, all of that heaped upon Christ. So that the demonstration of His righteousness in the present time for all of the future sins, all of the sins from the time of the cross till the sins till you and I go to glory, heaped upon Christ. God the Father is satisfied with the Son Payment of the Son 
for the sin has been paid in full through the shedding of His divine blood. Each time we take communion, we think about that reality, what Christ paid to atone once and for all for our sin. The word atonement in, in Leviticus 17.11, where, where there is the, the shedding of blood, there, the life is given, right? Without the, the life, there is no atonement for sin. That word atonement it, it really has the idea of appeasement. Without death, there is no real appeasement. Sin requires death. And through Christ's blood, there is redemption for all who would believe. The Apostle Peter, he reminds us, 1 Peter chapter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, so so what was the reason for this whole display? What was the reason that God put that display out there? What's the seventh truth concerning this righteousness? The reason was that God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ in the flesh, might both be shown to be perfectly righteous. That's what the rest of verse 25 and 26 say, really. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Who could claim God was righteous if He just passed over sins and didn't do what He said sins required? He wouldn't be righteous at all. And yet Christ is there and He's demonstrating the reality that all those sins needed to be dealt with and yet the demonstration today that His righteousness at the present time that we or that He might be just taking care of sin just like He said and able to justify somebody who has faith in Jesus Christ. The word demonstrate means proof. He proved it. God proved it. You want proof of the righteousness of Christ? You want proof of the righteousness of God the Father to deal with sin? Look at the cross. That's proof. God proved Himself to be both just, dealing with the past sins that were punished on the cross, along with all the future sins that were punished on the cross. Christ proved to be enough to satisfy the wrath of the Father. And God, through Christ, could then rightly justify all those who would believe. The reason you and I can even stand before God declared justified is simply because of Christ and Christ alone. I was reminded of this reality just this weekend when I was reading one of my favorite mentors, I'll read it to you. It's rather lengthy, but I think it will help you. Dr. MacArthur says, quote, In spite of the clear standard of his law, and in spite of the overwhelming evidence of our sin and corruption, God sweeps aside our crimes, washes away our guilt, and sets us free from the due penalty of our sin. How can he do that and uphold his holy law? 
Paul gives us the glorious answer in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Of course, Randy read it to us this morning. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the doctrine of substitution. That's the doctrine of substitution. Christ for you. That's how God can be both just and the justifier. God made him who knew no sin, which can only be a reference to Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf. So Scripture testifies over and over again that Christ, His sinless perfection, over and over again, the writer of Hebrews says He's holy, innocent, undefiled. Pontius Pilate says He has no guilt in Him. The Father says of of His Son, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The perfect, spotless, undefiled Son made to be sin on our behalf. That's the reality. In other words, God created Him as if He were a sinner. Or God treated Him, I should say, as if He were a sinner. More than that, actually, God poured out on him the full fury of his wrath against all the sins of all the people who would ever believe as if Christ had committed them himself. So as a righteous judge, he had no other choice. The just God of the universe had to punish sin justly. He had to pour out the full penalty of his son, on his son to grant forgiveness to his elect people. And His justice demands that every sin that has ever been committed by every person who has ever lived will be punished, either in the eternal torment of hell or on Christ at the cross. So it's a humbling and profound thought that God treated Jesus on the cross as if He had lived my life and punished Him for every sin I ever committed or ever will commit to the full satisfaction of His justice. And for all who were included in the atonement, He is provided by the sacrifice of the Son, by the glorious grace and mercy of God, the same is true. Through His suffering, Christ purchased our forgiveness. Through His sacrifice, He cleared the way for our reconciliation to God. He is our Redeemer, our Lord, our Lamb, unquote. What a wonderful God we have. How dreadful it would be if all we knew was that no flesh will be justified in His sight through the law. God's roadmap begins there. It begins at condemnation. But it quickly turns to the available justification. So I would just adjure anyone here this morning, get rid of human effort. Get rid of it. Stop. There is a new and effective way the way provided by God and God alone through the agent of faith available to all who would believe because it's necessary for all. You need it. And through faith, the verdict is innocent. No longer guilty. 
justification because of Christ. Why? Because God is holy. And only His righteousness can satisfy. Well, we'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again once more to have this privilege to come to Your Word. Lord, forgive us for presuming upon Your grace even this week. Forgive us for not living according to the faith that we have expressed, the granted gift of faith that You have given us who truly believe. Forgive us for treating one another with contempt when You never treated us that way. Forgive us for not serving one another as we ought, for speaking words that do not reflect the glory that Your very mouth would speak. For running from the truth and compromising in subtle ways where we know You would never compromise. Lord, we know that without Christ we stand before You condemned. No way, no hope. Without God, And yet in Christ alone, there is hope. The roadmap begins with realizing our condemnation and quickly running to You and begging for mercy that You offer through Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, there may be some here, I'm sure, who do not know You yet, who have not embraced Jesus Christ, who still even this morning sit in their 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 own attitudes and believe that somehow they can attach their life to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and thereby be acceptable to you. That somehow their morality, somehow their activity, somehow they can satisfy you. Lord, I pray that you would crush that, cause them to run to you, run to the cross, break down before you as a begging sinner and say, God, be merciful to me. It's the only hope. For you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of him by faith. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths. Anchor them to our soul that we might be motivated to do what you have asked us to do for the glory of your great name and for the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his all for us that we might give our all for him. Use us now for that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.